Last week was Easter, and as we do each year, we told the story of that first Easter morning when the women, on their way to prepare Jesus' body for burial, were surprised to find the body wasn't there. And instead, actually in the place where Jesus had been laid late on Friday afternoon, was an angel with an unexpected message. He's not here. He is risen, just as he said. And it was an astounding story with earth-shattering significance. But often, when we tell the story, we skip ahead from that moment. That's a dramatic moment in the story. We often skip ahead all the way to Pentecost, which took place 50 days later. That's the day when the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to Jesus' first disciples, his first followers. And they began preaching and teaching, and along the way began founding churches made up of new believers. It's a remarkable story because from just a few dozen followers of Jesus to a few thousand to less than 300 years later, millions of people who had decided to follow Jesus Christ, a story of transformation from a handful of frightened, failed disciples into courageous, death-defying dynamos burning with passion to tell other people about Jesus. But we often fail to talk about the in-between time, the story of how the disciples went from disappointed and despondent to bold and fearless, how Ten men, the remaining, uh, ten of the eleven remaining disciples, would eventually die for their faith. And you wonder, how did that transformation take place? Was it instantaneous? Did they metaphorically go from zero to 60 in a day? And the answer is no. Now, some of them did believe instantly, but others took more time. For example, Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, one of his immediate 12 disciples. But all of them needed time to connect the dots, to sort things out, to make sense of what they experienced, and it didn't all take place on that Sunday morning. The biographies of Jesus record uh, that a few, a few of the experiences that took place in a 40-day period immediately after Jesus rose from the dead until he ascended into heaven. Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people in about a five-week period, and in the months and years even to come, they continued to sort out the significance of what had happened. But it's that transition from Sunday to Monday that I want us to focus on today. It's a surprising comprehension that how they figured this all out that I want us to talk about. And Luke, one of Jesus' biographers, tells us a little bit about the events that took place after the, the, the events at the tomb. And he starts with an interesting story. You can find it in Luke 24. Uh, the words will be on the screen, but you can also follow along in one of the Pew Bibles if you wish, uh, beginning on page 1610. And the story I want to look at talks about a couple of disciples. Now, these weren't part of the immediate 12. This was a part of a larger group of people who had really been curious and interested about Jesus and had chosen to be his followers. A group of people that included men and women and young and old and others who believed Jesus was the Messiah. And as I said last week, their understanding of the Messiah was a, more of a political military liberator who would come along, drive out the Romans, purify the temple, and restore worship of the one true God. And when they saw what Jesus said and did, everything screamed Messiah, and they believed he might be the one. But then, it didn't actually happen, at least not the way that they had anticipated so the story that Luke tells begins on Sunday afternoon, and there are two disciples. They're walking um, to a village outside Jerusalem called Emmaus. It's a journey of about seven miles. It'll take an hour or a little more, maybe, to, to walk that, air, that distance. And Luke tells us they were talking with each other about the things that had happened. And then it says, as they talked and discussed these things with one another, Jesus came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. 
And Jesus asks them, what are you talking about? And unable to hide their grief, one of them says to Jesus, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he asked them, what things? And they said about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And then telling the story of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, they shared the source of their sadness. We had hoped, they said, that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So their hopes were crushed. They were confused. And they'd heard something, though, along the way that confused them, that they couldn't quite comprehend. What is more, they said to Jesus, it's, that on the th- it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amaze us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find the body. They came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. Now, it'd be easy to understate the disciples' confusion after Jesus' death, but they were despondent. And now they hear news that they can't quite believe. They're deeply skeptical, and yet they're also curious. They don't really have a category for understanding what this is all about. And it's at this point that Jesus steps into the gap. He says, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. So what he did is from Genesis to Malachi, this stranger, at least to them at that point, explained how the Old Testament scriptures pointed to the Messiah and the story that they had just experienced. He pointed out patterns and themes that they'd perhaps been blind to. And a strange realization began to creep over them about a suffering Messiah, not a military commander. That was what they most needed. And so in this way, Jesus gave them a framework, a conceptual framework, a theological framework to understand how what had happened fit God's plan. And Luke tells us that when they got close to Emmaus, this town where they, were, they lived, and they got close to home, they invited Jesus for dinner. He hesitated, but then he came in. And when they sat down at the table, there was some bread that was at the center of every table for a meal. And it said Jesus took it and he broke it And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And then, poof, he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us along the road and opened the scriptures to us? Now, what they did at this point is they went back then to Jerusalem. So they took that seven-mile journey, an hour, hour and a half walk, and they told the 11 remaining disciples what they had seen, now convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. And while they were there... Jesus suddenly appeared among them. Peace be with you, he said. It's a huge understatement because it also says here they were startled and frightening, thinking that that he was a ghost. And so he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Then he invited them to touch him, to help them see that he wasn't a ghost, that he'd actually returned from the dead, because this was almost too good to be true. And then just to show them and us in a practical way what had happened, he asked for something to eat, and he ate a bit of boiled fish. This is a detail that I used to skip over. It just seemed like a throwaway detail, but it's not. It's one of the most important details in the story, and not just then, but now. Many today dismiss the idea of a literal resurrection. They say it's a legend. Some argue that it was just a vague impression in the disciples' minds. The idea that Jesus continued with them in spirit, that his, uh, the idea of forgiveness and love and hope, well, that was just an impression that they had. 
that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. That's preposterous for us to believe. But this small detail tells us that was not what the disciples experienced. Jesus wasn't just a symbol, an impression in their minds, a sort of spiritual presence. Instead, he was really there. He wasn't a phantom or an hallucination or a dream or a spirit or a ghost. In fact, he invited his disciples to look at his hands and his feet, to touch and to see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. A ghost wouldn't have eaten fish and chips with his disciples. That's just one of the reasons why his disciples really believed he rose from the dead. And remember, this wasn't what they had been expecting. But even after that, they would, from that point on, tell everyone who would listen what they had seen about this paradigm-shattering, horribly inconvenient, but impossible to dismiss fact. After he ate the fish, he said this to them. He said, this is what I told you when I was still with you, that everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. What he did is he really showed them how to read their Bibles and understand what they'd experienced. And then he gave a summary of the message of the entire Bible. He said, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer, rise from the dead, and on the third day, you will receive forgiveness. Through repentance, you'll receive forgiveness of sins. And that's really a summary of the good news of Jesus Christ, that it is through his death and his resurrection that through repentance we can find a relationship with him. And that's why Easter matters. If Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, then he's still dead. He can't help us. But because he has risen from the dead, he can help, the help we so desperately need. Now, in our culture, we talk a lot about likes and dislikes. In fact, the beginning, early days of Facebook, all you had was a thumb up and a thumb down, like or dislike. We look for ideas that fit our preferences, but for the first disciples, this was really not just about likes and dislikes. This was about facts, and facts can be inconvenient. If you've read the Bible, you know that sometimes the Bible challenges uh, us in maybe small and even big ways. Challenges us how we use our money, how we live out our sexuality, our speech, and in dozens of other ways. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he's just one more wise teacher. But if he did come back to life, then we have to deal with everything that he said, whether we like it or not. Not everyone buys into the idea that Jesus rose from the dead. And, and listen, I understand why. It's not something you see every day. None of us have experienced it ourselves. And yet the evidence that we have here is compelling. And I believe Jesus did rise from the dead. But let me give you one more way to think about the resurrection. And that is to answer the question of why you might want to believe that it's true. Now, I realize that you never want to believe something just because you wish it's true. But if you can hang with me for just a moment, let's go through a little thought experiment about this. Many today believe that when we die, that's it. But you want to ask yourself a question, how satisfying is that really? The idea that we, when we die, it's, we're just gone. Periodically, I'm invited to walk with a family through the loss of a loved one. And it might be a family I know well or sometimes not well, but in every case, as we get ready to prepare for a funeral, sad but also an occasion to remember that person, I will hear people talk, even through their grief, about the hope they have of being reunited with their loved one in the future. If this life is all there is, that's simply not possible. The resurrection, though, if true and Luke tells that it is true, then we can find forgiveness and new life in him and we'll be reunited with others who also put their faith and trust in Jesus. Now here's another example. 
One of the most challenging questions for Christians is what to do with evil and suffering. So when I sit down with people and they ask me some of their questions, this is very common for people to ask me, how can a good God allow good people to suffer? Either God isn't good or he isn't powerful, so how do you sort it all out? Now, if we had time today, I would explain some of the answers that have been helpful to me in thinking through that particular difficult question. But I have to confess that I don't have all the answers There are mysteries here that I will probably really not understand in this life, even though I think there are good answers. But here's the deal. If you simply reject Christian faith because we don't have a comprehensive answer to this challenging question, where else do you have to go? Philosophical naturalism, the idea that uh, this life is all there is, just says, in a sense, that we're a bag of chemicals, and when life is over, there's nothing. But is that comforting? That means that life is, as Thomas Hobbes once said, nasty, brutish, and short. And then we're gone. There's no meaning to our experiences here on this earth. And even the love we have for one another doesn't last, doesn't endure. Frankly, knowing that Jesus rose from the dead, that he's coming again to make things right, that he's promised us a new heaven and a new earth, a place where we can live with God for eternity and one another, that's something I can get behind. And the resurrection shows us that that vision for life is true. There's no religion, no philosophy, no list of New Age platitudes that promises a future anything like what Jesus promises for us. That's why I say you should want the Christian story to be true. It fits with the hopes and dreams that I believe God has hardwired us with. And here's the kicker. It is true. It's grounded in history in the story of the resurrection. Here at City Church, we believe, and I say really believe, that everyone who's far from God would be better off if Jesus Christ were at the center of your life. We're convinced that if you had a relationship with Jesus, you'd find peace and meaning and purpose and guidance, strength to face the challenges that you may face, and a hope for eternity that you don't currently have. That's why we regularly encourage people here at City Church, if you've not yet already, to receive the invitation that Jesus offers to each one of us. In reading Luke 24 this week, I was reminded of how difficult that journey can often be. Because for the disciples, they had to experience this and and sort it all out. In some cases, they did in just a few hours, but in other cases, it took days and weeks after Jesus' resurrection. It wasn't an easy process. And it played out differently for different people over time. So if you're in process, if you're trying to think this all through, be patient with yourself. And we'd love to help if we can, but understand that it sometimes is a process where you have to answer questions. We don't want you to blindly accept something you haven't been able to sort out. Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends, and he was the first to connect a dot along the line of these dots that, that needed to be connected. It was about a year before the events of Holy Week, and Jesus asked his disciples, who do you think that I am? And they'd given some other answers of who others thought that he was. And Peter answered, you're the Messiah, or Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, just so Peter didn't get a big head, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Joseph, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, this wasn't something that Peter discovered on his own, something he puzzled out after a long day in the library. It was revealed to him by God. Now, that was only the first step in what turned out for Peter to be a long journey. It took several years. It says over the the next year, Peter grew in his understanding, but he still hadn't connected all the dots. It's clear from the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday that Peter was still confused. The best way to describe it is that Peter's relationship with Jesus grew in fits and starts. 
In fact, the biographies of Jesus indicate that his spiritual growth and understanding couldn't necessarily be plotted on a sort of a straight line on a graph. It moved, it was moving in the right direction, but it was up and down along the way. And at each moment along the way, Peter probably wasn't even sure exactly where he was. He may not have even been aware exactly of the moment when it kind of all came together and he really understood who Jesus was. And I think that's the way it is for us, for many of us. We often think of faith as a search where we seek God, and in some senses that's true. Conversations with people uh, sometimes will draw a diagram that looks like this. It never looks this nice. This is a designed piece. But um, I'll draw this out on a napkin in a caribou or a Starbucks. And what it describes is the idea of a spiritual journey, that all of us are trying to figure this God thing out, and we're just in different places along this continuum. Again, it's not always a linear path, but there are some common points along this line. You may have a time when you went from actually being fairly hostile toward faith in general to being indifferent, just whatever. Uh, But maybe moving from there to a more skeptical phrase, a phase where you're just asking questions about, really, can this be true? Or maybe from there, being a bit more curious and asking questions, and from the questions, looking for answers to seeking And then maybe to faith, where you say, oh, now I get it. Now, that's how it sometimes happens for people. And what I find is that not only does God, we seek God, but God seeks us. It's sometimes clear that God gets our attention. Sometimes it can be in a dramatic way. Otherwise, other times it's a gentle nudge. And for you today, maybe you've been through an experience where there are either a gentle nudge or maybe a push in a not-so-subtle way. But what I've observed is that this journey to faith can take a lot of different forms. Sometimes it's a dramatic single moment when just everything comes together. I've met people who can tell me the date, the time, the year, whenever that it happened. One of, an example of that in the Bible is St. Paul. On a road to a city called Damascus, Jesus appeared to him and he instantly believed and was changed. That's a bit the way that it happened to my wife. She was in middle school over an MEA weekend. She went to a Young Life uh, retreat, a camp uh, in northern Minnesota, and she heard the message of Jesus, and that night in her cabin, sitting on the bottom bunk, looking at the graffiti above her, she just kind of came together. So she can tell you when that happened. For others, conversion is a process. It takes time, and you're not sure when you first believed. That's Peter's story, and it's my story as well. I was relatively young. I was in sixth grade, and I don't know when exactly I became a Christ follower, but it was sometime between the beginning of sixth grade and the end. I didn't believe at the beginning. I did at the end. I had someone here at City Church one time who I met with for over a year just talking about faith who said to me, he said, you know, I think I get it, but it kind of snuck up on me. It didn't happen in a moment. just snuck up on him. So whether faith is a single moment or a process, we all grow into an understanding of who Jesus is and what he wants of us. And we're never stopped growing, really. Um, I find that whether, the road to fa- whether it's on the road to faith or after, there are, are uh, milestones along the way. Sometimes we're aware of what's going on inside of us. Sometimes we're not. But my encouragement is that wherever you might find yourself on this line, that you'll take the next step. If you're exploring faith, do something tangible to pursue God. That might be deciding to make faith a priority. It might mean picking up a Bible, reading one of the biographies of Jesus. But maybe you've already started seeking and you have a bunch of questions. My encouragement to you would be to seek the answers. Read a book or two. Meet with somebody that can help you along the way. If you want help, those of us on staff or others here at City Church would love to help you.
But maybe you've also been seeking for a while. You've been bouncing along. You've started to connect the dots. And maybe it's time for you to commit to Jesus for the first time. St. Paul put it this way. He said, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if this is something you've decided to do, if it's kind of come clear to you, would you let us know? Because we'd love to help you along the way. You can use the connection card. You can email. You can call. Whatever you want to do to let us know. Now, it might also be that you made this decision a long time ago, but you realize that you haven't been making much progress recently. Why don't you recommit your life to Jesus? If so, I'd encourage you to start spending time with him. It's very simply at City Church, we encourage you to spend a little bit of time. I I tell people who've never done it before, 10, 15 minutes is all it requires. Just read a little portion of the Bible, um, pray um, both for your needs and the needs of others, and then be on with your day and let those words soak in. Now, there are other things we need to consider because sometimes there's junk in our lives. Sometimes you don't know, uh, you know that something in your life doesn't please God. Commit to get it cleaned up and begin to take steps, get support, ask for God's help. So the question for all of us is, what is our next step? Wherever we are along that line. Jesus, um, the story that Luke tells, draws us in and describes the experience of many who uh, come to faith in Jesus through the centuries. And he suggests that it's a different experience for everyone. That some, it's an instant experience, but for others, it takes time. But it is something that we should not neglect. C.S. Lewis was talking about one time the resurrection, and he said this. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is of moderately important. And so we hear the words of Jesus in Luke 24. When Jesus said to these disciples of his, he said, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and you will find forgiveness of sins through repentance. Our experience tells us that we are more sinful and broken than we ever imagined. And that's why we need to repent of our sins. The cross shows us that we are more loved and cherished than we ever dared to hope. And the empty tomb shows the power of God to forgive us, to give us new life, and to forgive our sins. And so if that makes sense today, let me encourage you not to delay, but to choose Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're all trying to connect the dots, and we ask that you would come alongside us, that you'd open our eyes with understanding, help us to see what new step of faith we ought to take in our lives. Thank you for your patience with us. Give us understanding. May we clearly see our sin and fully grasp your love. May we see how Jesus' death on our behalf makes possible peace with you. Forgive us, redeem us, and give us new life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.